This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Live from the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez, America's favorite late night talk program featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. Our phone number, if you want to join us this Thursday evening, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. And the FBI is again under scrutiny. We talked a little bit about that, and we're going to continue that conversation. Uh, we're also going to have some discussion on the economy, as well as some other topics. But I want to start with the idea that Kamala Harris, you know her, our vice president, uh, who I like to call Que Mala Eres. In fact, I even made a little song about her. I don't know if you've heard it before, but I, I enjoy hearing it. Listen to this. So Kamala Harris, or who I like to call Que Mala Eres, which means how bad she is, uh, she was at the State Department with the Australian Prime Minister today, and she was praising Australia's massive gun confiscation saying that our friends in Australia demonstrated it does not have to be this way. I got to tell you, ever since I was, I'm not that old, I'm only 45, but since I was young, I remember politicians, various politicians, uh, 100% of them on the left, always praising Europe, always praising some other country that doesn't have a constitutional system like ours. And I always thought, why would they do that? And I'm so grateful, really am grateful to have been educated in public schools in New York City, public school 197, um, intermediate school 240, because I, I learned about the Constitution in, in the fifth grade. We had to read the entire thing, understand what it was, and it, it shaped my life. And, and, and as I'm an older person now, as an adult, I can tell you that there's so many people that could care less about the Constitution. And it's kind of like watching a football game and not knowing the rules of football or watching a boxing match and not knowing the rules of the boxing match. It's, it's difficult to live life. And again, the Constitution is not our rules per se. It's really our rules on the government. That's why it says we, the people, real big at the top. But Kamala Harris, she's applauding the fact that they did a massive gun grab in Australia and they're not safe. And that's why during the COVID lockdowns, these people were put into concentration camps. 
or detention centers or whatever you want to call that. But they took them out of their homes and made them live in little huts against their will. They were dragging pregnant women. I saw the videos. If you didn't, too bad. They were all over my social media. And, and to think that you would treat someone this way is just, to me, it's unconscionable. But Kamala Harris praising the Australians for taking away guns. Listen to this. And as we gather details, we must continue to speak truth about the moment we are in. In our country today, the leading cause of death of American children is gun violence. Gun violence has terrorized and traumatized so many of our communities in this country. And let us be clear, it does not have to be this way. As our friends in Australia have demonstrated. Now, we've had um, Dr. John Lott on the program before to kind of debunk this number that they've created to say that gun violence, uh, as if guns get violent, um, are is the number one cause of, of uh, death for children. Uh, in fact, that number is very flawed. And if we really look at things, we've got car accidents, we've got fentanyl, we've got a lot of things that kill young people. And again, not that I'm trying to uh, uh, say that kids sh- should die from guns. I'm not. What I am saying is that the administration goes out of their way to try and paint a picture that really isn't real and it doesn't exist. And yes, nobody should die at the hand of a gun accidentally or any child that's, you know, not pointing a gun at a cop or something like that shouldn't happen. But I realize that things do happen. The majority of these deaths are suicides, not some sort of um, crazy killing that they're talking about. But all that being said, Kamala Harris wants to paint this picture to praise, um, I would say, our friends in Australia. But I don't know if they're our friends all the time, right? They're our friends some of the time, and some of the time they're not. The reality is Kamala Harris is kind of uh, off her rocker, my opinion, just being frank here. Now, I want to switch gears to a little foreign policy because Israel is conducting a, a ground incursion in Gaza And tanks are starting to roll through the border area. You've probably seen that on the news. And the uh, Israeli forces conducted a a brief ground incursion with uh, the emphasis on Hamas. Now we're on the 20th day of the war. And again, I understand why they're exercising caution. There's hostages. And there's talk of putting nerve gas in these tunnels, cutting off oxygen to the tunnels. Also, you're going to have to do something with the tunnels. But the thing is, it's hard to do these things if you don't have the hostages. But in one of their strategic strikes, they hit one of the top guys, uh, one of the leaders of Hamas that was planning or was in charge of planning for the ox, uh, excuse me, October 7th attack. And um, kudos to the IDF on that. Uh, but Hossein Amir Abdulhanian, Abdul Hian, excuse me. He's uh, the Iranian foreign minister. He was at the UN today and he voiced um, his concern and readiness to hand over all of the civilian hostages to Iran. Listen to this. The leaders of the Hamas Liberation Palestinian movement have voiced their readiness to release the non military prisoners to us and the Islamic Republic of Iran 
stands ready to play its part in this very important humanitarian endeavor along with Qatar and Turkey. Naturally, the release of the 6,000 Palestinian prisoners is another necessity and responsibility of the global community. Again, that is the uh, Iranian foreign minister saying, hey, look, we're, we're game to get in. And he's now citing Turkey and uh, Qatar. So uh, this thing looks like it's, it's going to get worse before it gets a lot better. But it, it's fascinating to me how we, we just look at these things and, and we just, we don't bat an eye. And I, I listen, I understand you're working, you're trying to feed your family, you're trying to do all sorts of things. But ultimately, if we don't curtail this violence in the Middle East, this can turn into something of epic proportion, right? A lot of people are saying this is the beginning of World War III. Uh, all I can tell you is that the Pentagon is deploying 900 more troops to be ready for the region. And this isn't what we need. We don't need more wars. We do need to defend our partner, our, our ally, Israel, um, the, the only um, partner really that we have in that part of the world. But this doesn't have to be this way. It's this way because of Joe Biden's weakness. It's this way because of the disastrous policies that he's put into place. So I want to talk about that. I want to switch gears to some domestic policy as well as the FBI. Now um, they're, they're under fire for uh, having 40 informants uh, on Biden, right? Um, they received criminal information from over 40 confidential sources on Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, and James Biden, according to Senator Chuck, uh, Chuck Grassley. And uh, we're going to dig into that with our next guest. So don't go anywhere. Don't move a muscle. I'm Rich Valdez. I'm here with you till 1 a.m., keeping you company most of this evening. Our phone number again, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. This is America night with Rich Valdez. Well, thank you, Rich, and thank you for everything. I know you very well, and I have I listen, but I have a lot of people that listen, and they love your show, and I appreciate it very much. America at Night with Rich Valdez. So as a result of the actions of James Comey, the disgraced James Comey, and the FBI, they've interfered with the elections in both 2016 and 2020. Will that interference happen again in 2024 by the FBI? The FBI is not going to be interfering in elections. They did in 2016. Well, I, I don't know that that's what Mr. Durham found. What I would tell you again is that it was conduct that I consider unacceptable and unrepresentative. You can be in denial if you want to. I'm not in uh, denial, Dr. sir. You can be in denial on this. That's exactly what happened. That's FBI Director Christopher Wray not too long ago at a congressional hearing saying that the FBI will not interfere in any elections. Yet uh, there's an exclusive from Fox News that says the FBI maintained more than 40 confidential human sources on various criminal matters related to the Biden family, including Joe Biden, dating back to his time as vice president. And that's according to information obtained by Senator Chuck Grassley. 
The confidential human sources provided criminal information to the FBI relating to Joe Biden, James Biden, and Hunter Biden. Those confidential human sources were managed by multiple FBI field offices across the country, including the FBI's Seattle field office. Uh, however, Grassley learned that an FBI task force within the Washington field office sought to, in some cases, successfully shut down reporting and information from those sources by falsely discrediting the information as foreign disinformation. Uh, for example, the Hunter Biden laptop. The effort caused uh, investigative activity to cease. However, the uh, efforts by the FBI task force, Grassley said in at least one instance, a, a confidential human source and its information had been vetted by multiple U.S. attorney's offices, which found no hits to known sources of Russian dif disinformation. So it was fake. It was phony. It was fraud, what they were saying. Now, the revelations were laid out in a letter to Grassley uh, that he sent out to Attorney General Merrick Garland and FBI Director Christopher Wray um, two days ago on Tuesday. The letter was exclusively obtained by Fox News. And uh, a quote from it says, based on the information provided to my office over a period of years by multiple credible whistleblowers, there appears to be an effort within the Justice Department and the FBI to shut down investigative activity relating to the Biden family. That's what uh, Grassley wrote to Garland and Ray, uh, continuing to say such decisions point to significant political bias infecting the decision making of not only the attorney general and the FBI director, but also line agents and prosecutors. He added, our republic cannot survive such a political infection, and you have an obligation to this country to clear the air. Now, after all of this came to light, there's a lot of speculation that the FBI, in fact, tried to help get Biden elected to continue the cover-up because Trump was on to them. So I want to get to the bottom of this with James, uh, th excuse me, Thomas J. Baker. Excuse me. I was going to say James Biden. <laughs> that would be a great interview, right? Uh, he's a former FBI agent and he's the author of The Fall of the FBI, How a Once Great Agency Became a Threat to Democracy. Former Agent Baker, welcome, sir. Glad to be with you tonight, Rich. Thank you. Now, in hearing uh, what we just discussed about um, the uh, chicanery from Ray's FBI, uh, a once, um, I'm going to say a once great organization that you, you worked at. Um, what, how do you react to that? What's your initial reaction? Well, it, it, the questions have to be answered. Uh, Senator Grassley has been on this case, so to speak, uh, for quite some time now. Uh, this is one of a series of demands he's made. Uh, and what is most telling is the uh, a little soundbite you played at the beginning uh, with Ray's comments. Uh, Ray's still refusing to recognize the problem. Each time something like this comes to light, uh, he said the uh, the bad apples, the malefactors are no longer with us uh, and everything's okay now. And that's just not the case. The, case. the culture has changed and that's the underlying issue that has to be addressed. How do you see uh, the FBI today versus uh, when you were serving in the FBI, Thomas Baker? Well, I, I, th I think, as I explain in my book, uh, this all traces back to changes that were begun under Mueller, some of which uh, had some rational basis in as much as Mueller was reacting to the September 11th attacks. He became director only two or three days before the September 11th attacks happened. 
And um, he he after that, and I can I can explain this in some detail, but essentially, he changed the culture of the FBI from that of a swear to tell the truth law enforcement organization to an intelligence-driven agency. And that had a lot of unintended consequences, and we have seen a lot of that bear, bad fruit bear out in the, uh, in the uh, Russian collusion investigation, most specifically, but in several incidents since then as well. What, what do you think the impetus, and of course I think 9-11 is, is a glaring example of it, but do you think that they used 9-11 as a catalyst for this change from being an investigatory agency, a kind of federal policing, to uh, this um, counterterrorism type of focus? Was it because of 9-11 or did they use 9-11 as a ruse? Well, uh, I, I think some of it was inadvertent, but that's definitely, that's the key moment in history. And if if uh, if we have time, uh, as I said, yeah, take your time. Mueller, go, for, go for it. Okay, Mueller, Mueller was the director for only a few days when the nine eleven attacks happened. Now, let, uh, let's step back even further because I, I know, Rich, you're a student of history, and a lot of your listeners late at night, mm-hmm. this is the kind of thing they they appreciate. Whenever in history there's a crisis, in response to the crisis, sometimes even good people make mistakes. And there have been three major crises, really only three major crises in the history of our nation. And let me explain. One was September 11th. Before September 11th, the attacks of September 11th were the attack on Pearl Harbor. Before the attack on Pearl Harbor was the attack on Fort Sumter, the beginning of the Civil War. In each of those cases, in reaction to that crisis, mistakes were made. A president who today I think everybody loves and reveres, and some probably might think he was the greatest president we ever had, Abraham Lincoln. Even Abraham Lincoln, in the crises of the Civil War after the attacks on Fort Sumter, he made mistakes. He jeopardized the Bill of Rights. And you can make excuses for him, but the fact is it happened. He suspended the writ of habeas corpus. The Supreme Court said he was wrong. And later, after he was no longer president in a related case, the Supreme Court ruled that the president doesn't have the power to uh, suspend the writ of habeas corpus and that civilians cannot be tried by military military tribunals. That was Abraham Lincoln. Then we had the crisis of, of Pearl Harbor. And in the reaction to that, President FDR, he, he had Japanese citizens on the West Coast in turn. Japanese citizens were interned without any, the Bill of Rights was suspended for them. Everybody today, just about everybody today, thinks that was a tremendous uh, mistake and an infringement on the Bill of Rights. And then we had similar things, which is not yet, yet recognized, that happened after September 11th. So the Saturday morning after the September 11th attack. Thomas Baker, hang on right there. Before you get into September 11th, uh, we're going to take a quick pause so you can take your time unpacking the September 11th uh, part of that, those three incidences. Folks, we're on with Thomas J. Baker, former FBI agent and author of The Fall of the FBI, How a Once Great Agency Became a Threat to Democracy. Don't go anywhere. It's Rich Valdez with our guest, Thomas J. Baker, and we're coming right back. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about 
how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. What were the Bidens selling to make all this money? Joe Biden himself. Joe Biden is the brand. And Joe Biden showed up at least two dozen times with business targets and associates sending signals of access, influence, and power to those prepared to pay for it. The American people demand accountability for this culture of corruption. They demand to know how these schemes have compromised President Biden and threaten our national security. They demand safeguards to be put in place to prevent public officials from selling access to their public office for private gain. That is Oversight Chairman James Comer saying that Joe Biden has been selling his office. And now the allegations are that the FBI has been taking it easy on him uh, because the FBI that was a once great organization has kind of fallen by the wayside uh, defending Joe Biden. And uh, we're having this discussion with Thomas J. Baker, former FBI agent and author of The Fall of the FBI, How a Once Great Agency Became a Threat to Democracy. And uh, former Agent Baker has over 33 years of experience in the FBI, uh, including experience overseas, serving as a legal attache in Canberra, Austria, excuse me, Australia and France. He was uh, assistant special agent in charge of the Washington field office, and he was the first agent on the scene of President Reagan's shooting. Uh, Tom directed the FBI's response to that crisis, and since retiring from the FBI, he's continued to remain engaged with law enforcement as a consultant. And he's with us now talking about the, the latest with Biden. And we left off in our the earlier part of our conversation with three major incidences uh, that changed uh, American uh, the FBI in America, uh, one of them being the attack on Fort Sumter back in the uh, beginning of the war, and then the attack on Pearl Harbor, and, of course, with 9-11, and that's where we left off. Agent Baker, go right ahead. Okay, so what happened, uh, Mullah had only been the director of the FBI for about a week when he was summoned on the Saturday morning after the September 11th attacks, which happened on a Tuesday, to the president's retreat in Camp David, Maryland, to give an account, he thought, to give an account of the FBI's investigation to President George W. Bush. Uh, In those three and a half days between Tuesday and when the attack happened on that Saturday morning, the FBI did what it does best, investigate. And in that short period of time, they had identified all 19 hijackers, their financing, their travel, their backgrounds, their connections, every detail about them and their contacts going back to al-Qaeda. When he was done with that report, which the FBI codenamed Pentbomb for Pentagon, Pennsylvania bombing, uh, he was expecting praise and thanks. He told us all this. And instead, George W. Bush just looked at him and said, I don't care about that. I just want to know how you're going to prevent the next one. 
Mueller left that meeting bound and determined to change the culture of the FBI. And that's the word he used, culture. He wanted to get it away from law enforcement and get them thinking and acting like an intelligence agency. Uh, that may have been seemed reasonable to some people at the time, but it had unintended consequences, bad consequences, which we have come to see in the Russian collusion investigation and events since then. You know, uh, Agent Thomas J. Baker, it's clear to me that these things happen. And as I look at uh, what's happened since then, I mean, I think there, there are new um, incidents now, not as as marked as those are, but we've had uh, January 6th where there, it's alleged by, by some, including those in Congress, saying that there were confidential human sources or undercover FBI agents that were agitating the situation on January 6th. You have the, the raid on Mar-a-Lago, which uh, some say that was at the insistence of the FBI to for either for the sake of optics or, again, to uh, curtail any attention that might have come to Joe Biden, Hunter Biden and James Biden. And I, I guess my question is, do you think that with everything you're talking about and this change within the FBI coming to a, a more intelligence, making it kind of like a domestic CIA in many ways, do you feel like the FBI had any hand in uh, helping Joe Biden get elected uh, so that they could uh, kind of cover their tracks? Because that seems to be the latest allegation. Well, as regards to that specific allegation, the answer has to be yes, because we know now the FBI had had the, the Hunter Biden laptop for some time. We know, uh, I know certainly for a fact, that they have the technical expertise, the staffing, where in a matter of days, if not hours, they could tell that the laptop was genuine, uh, that it was not Russian disinformation. And, and a whole book's been written about that, the laptop from hell, about sure. all the information that was on that laptop. And yet uh, they stood by while some people, including um, these, these alleged 50-some former intelligence officers, put out the story and said that this is likely Russian disinformation when the FBI and the Department of Justice knew for a fact at that moment that it wasn't Russian disinformation, that it was solid stuff. Uh, it, it's quite interesting that one key person in this who has escaped a lot of notice is the current Deputy Attorney General, uh, uh, Monaco. She, she, her name is now, this is online, uh, I mean, it's been re revealed, and it's available to people to, to find it on the web. She is one of two people who solicited these other former intelligence agents, uh, intelligence officers, to sign on to that declaration. Uh, her name was on the top of the, the header. She circulated that, helped recruit people to sign that. She had been, when Mueller was attorney uh, director of the FBI, uh, Lisa Monaco had been his chief of staff. Uh, she now is the deputy attorney general. I mean, look at look at how this comes full circle. And she had she was deeply involved in discrediting the laptop from the right. get go. It's 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 absolutely insane. But it but it all goes back to that cultural change in the FBI, and and, and that's key. And it and it's a it's a big difference. Uh, for the benefit of your listeners, let me say this: in a law enforcement agency, people live every day because you exist in a law enforcement agency within the parameters of the Constitution, and you live every day and 
consciously or unconsciously, you're acting towards the day when you're going to have to stand up in court before a judge or a jury and raise your right hand and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. That's very different from an intelligence agency that basically deals in deceit and deception on a daily basis. And their end product is what they call an estimate, an intelligence estimate, which is, is, is essentially a best guess. Uh, it, it makes all the difference in the world, your, your whole mindset. And often intelligence agencies, historically this has always been true, they tend to try and please their political masters because they have the opportunity to shape the truth. You really don't have that in law enforcement. You have to stay w within certain guidelines. Folks, we're on with uh, former FBI agent Thomas J. Baker uh, discussing uh, all of the news that's coming out about the FBI director, Ray, and, and the, um, the seeming cover-up of the illegality of the Biden family. Uh, his book, The Fall of the FBI, How a Once Great Agency Became a Threat to Democracy. We're going to continue with uh, Agent Thomas J. Baker straight ahead. Don't move a muscle. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. Our guest is Thomas J. Baker, former FBI agent and the author of The Fall of the FBI, How Once Great Agency Became a Threat to Democracy. And something um, that I thought was cool about Agent Baker's um, resume, or his biography, I should say, is that he was the special uh, assistant special agent in charge of the FBI Washington field office and was the first agent on the scene of President Reagan's shooting back on March 30th of 1981. Agent Baker, what was that like when, um, when that all went down? Well, it was, we knew at the moment it happened that it was going to be an historical case. Uh, it was, quite frankly, very stressful. Uh, but what came out of that, unfortunately, in the Washington field office at that time, uh, and this is how the FBI does succeed. This is part of the good of the story. Uh, the theme throughout my book is the good, the bad, and the ugly. And this is part of the good stuff. We had an excellent working relationship between the FBI, the Secret Service, and the Washington Metropolitan Police. And all the law enforcement agencies that day cooperated with each other very closely. So that was the good part of it. What made it very stressful was the background to it. A lot of people forget now, because nowadays everybody knows that John Hinckley, the would-be assassin, was a, is a mentally deranged, uh, was a mentally deranged young man. But we didn't know that when it happened. And the background at that time was that the, the world and the, the United States was in a high state of alert vis-a-vis uh, -vis the, the Russians, the Soviet Union. Uh, so there was great tension for the first several hours and trying to figure what 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 was happening and what was going to happen. We didn't know if other officials were going to be attacked or not. 
But uh, the day was a success simply be, in, from an investigative point of view, simply because everybody got along together. Everybody knew one another. Everybody cooperated. That was the good part of that. Now, what was it like, though? Were you, were you at the Washington field office and got a call from the Secret Service? Were you on site? How did that unfold? Okay, at that moment, I was actually in my car, my bureau car, as we say, and I was, I was on another mission going to a different meeting, and I heard on the commercial radio, WMAL in Washington, D.C., that the president had just been shot outside the Hilton. That was the news flash. So I got on the radio back to the Washington field office, to the base, and I asked what Hilton, because in Washington, D.C., there, there are two big Hiltons, the Capitol Hilton and the Washington Hilton, where a lot of these events take place. Uh, they hadn't even heard about it. We learned later that this news flash came out so immediately because there were a lot of press people right there uh, with Reagan broadcasting as, as the event was happening. Uh, that's how come it got on the air. But I headed up, as we say, uptown. And in a matter of uh, moments, I found out that it was the Washington Hilton. I got there. I was the first FBI agent on the scene. It was a very chaotic scene. Uh, ambulances were beginning to arrive uh, to pick up, as we now know, four different people were shot. Ambulances were beginning to arrive, and the Marine Corps had dispatched their heavy helicopters uh, that usually work with the president, and they were right overhead over the street, uh, and they stayed there for five or ten minutes. They were making a tremendous noise. So it was a very chaotic scene, uh, and I was concerned because we had all read and studied in the assassination of uh, President John F. Kennedy that there was a lot of, quite frankly, uh, turf wars and feuding among law enforcement. It was rather disgraceful. All the law enforcement agencies involved in Dallas were at each other's throats. Nobody was in charge. Uh, and I knew that there was a federal law that the FBI was now responsible for the investigation of any assault on the president. Uh, so I was fearing a, a turf war, but that didn't happen at all. First person came up to me was Jimmy Wilson, who was in charge of the homicide um, section of the Washington Metropolitan Police Department. We knew each other. He had the, the shooter's pistol in an envelope already, wanted to give it to me. Second person came up to me was uh, Powers, who was the special agent in charge of the Secret Service in, in Washington, D.C. itself. Uh, and he acknowledged to me immediately. He said, you're the FBI. You're in charge now. That was it. They just threw it at me and we just went full bore ahead. Uh, very good cooperation, but a very tense situation for the first several hours. At what point did you discover that it was just Hinckley? He was acting alone. And and that was that. Well, for sure, not till that evening. Uh, we had a forward command post at the Washington Hilton and another command post in the field office. Uh, we found out from Hinckley when he was interviewed, and he was very uh, a passive individual, but cooperative, uh, a truth teller with the agents who interviewed him. And he told them where he had been staying. Uh, we got a, uh, during the course of the day, uh, uh, one agent in particular was working on this, got a search warrant for Hinckley's hotel room. And the, it was like nine or 10 at night by the time we got to search the hotel room. And uh, I left the Washington Hilton at that time and went to, with the team that was going to conduct the search. And there in Hink Hinkley's room in, in the Washington Hilton, he had laid out on his desk there a, let, a statement in the form of a letter to the actress, Jodie Foster, 
why he was doing this. He had beside it a map circled with the location of the Washington Hilton, and he had from the morning's newspaper the president's schedule. Uh, they used to publish the president's schedule every day in one of the local papers in Washington. They don't do that anymore, obviously. And he had that circled. So his whole plan was laid out there, his whole explanation. And he told uh, the actress Jodie Forster, who he was infatuated with, that he was going to commit this world historical act of killing President Reagan to win her love. Uh, obviously, the man was uh, had a very twisted mind, but it was laid out right out there. There was the whole motive, the whole clue. There was no conspiracy. Uh, we we conducted a lot of follow up in investigation with with the police and with the Secret Service in, in the days after that to confirm everything. But he had no accomplices. It was just his own uh twisted, uh, demented mind that caused him to do this. Thomas J. Baker, uh, let everybody know how they can get a copy of your book, The Fall of the FBI, How a Once Great Agency Became a Threat to Democracy. Well, like most people get their books today on Amazon, the book is on Amazon.com. There's a lot of information about it there. The book has its own website, www.thomasjbakerbook.com. Dot com one word thomas j baker book.com and of course it's in it's in many bookstores especially the barnes and nobles and you can get it barnes and noble online as well outstanding well sir i want to thank you for being here tonight i also wanted to thank you the last time you were on you invited me to a book signing that was right in my neck of the woods but i wasn't able to go i trust that that was a success and i continue i wish you continued success with the book okay thank you and and thank you for all that you do And thank you for all that you do for our country as well, Rich. Amen. God bless you, sir. You're a national treasure. Folks, Thomas J. Baker, grab a copy of his book, The Fall of the FBI, How a Once Great Agency Became a Threat to Democracy. And we're going to do your calls and more straight ahead. Don't go anywhere. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. is America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back, familia. And I want to talk about, since we're on the topic of the FBI, a story that's in NBC 10 Philadelphia. Listen to this. Witnesses accuse FBI of digging up Civil War gold in the middle of the night in order to hide found riches. The agency says uh, that it found no gold but it's refusing to release certain documents. Now, you would think when you hear that, that the FBI would have been like, we weren't digging up any gold. No, they didn't say that. They said, yeah, we didn't find anything. (laughs) So, yes, they were digging up gold. In the heart of uh, Pennsylvania elk country, Eric McCarthy and his client, Don Reichel, uh, woke up uh, uh, before sunrise to scour the forest for so-called brown gold, a rack of freshly shed antlers and to add to uh, his collection. Over the hill, a team of FBI agents were also hunting for gold, but the metallic yellow kind. The FBI's highly unusual search for buried Civil War era treasure more than five years ago set in motion a dispute uh, that the agency uh, now has an ongoing legal battle over key records. 
There's so much intrigue, even a federal judge felt compelled to note in a ruling last week, the FBI may have found the gold, or maybe not. So while we're covering up things for Biden, going after Trump, going to Mar-a-Lago, doing everything under the sun, the FBI is also digging for gold in Pennsylvania. Civil War era gold. You can't make this stuff up, folks. Anyway, we're going to continue our conversation straight ahead. Your calls and more, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. Don't go anywhere. Live from the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez, America's favorite late night talk program featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. Uh, Very happy Thursday to you. Our phone number, 833-482-5337. If you want to join our late-night national town hall conversation, 8334-VALDEZ. And it was just a few weeks ago that uh, Secretary Janet Yellen, is, is that her job, Secretary? Right, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, she says that, yes, we can afford war on multiple fronts. Listen to this. Can America, can the West afford another war at this time? I, I think the answer is absolutely. Um, America can certainly afford to stand with Israel and to support Israel's military needs. And we also can and must support Ukraine in its struggle against Russia. And look, the American economy is doing extremely well. So Secretary Yellen made those comments about 10 days ago, and it didn't take Biden that long to start looking for $60 billion for Ukraine and $14 billion for Israel. This is according to Reuters. Uh, President Joe Biden's going to ask Congress for $60 billion uh, in order to uh, help Each of these countries, the request is also going to include $10 billion for humanitarian aid, $14 billion for border security, and $7 billion for the Indo-Pacific region, according to the source that uh, Reuters spoke with. Half of the $60 billion is requesting for Ukraine is going to go towards replacing and modernizing U.S. weapons, uh, according to to the source yet again. So I want to get into this because... um, I think most people, most, I can't think of too many people that are going to say, yeah, great idea. Let's keep spending money on foreign wars and doing this and doing that. And listen, I, I, I'm one of the biggest proponents of supporting Ukraine, but I, I want to support Ukraine so we win the war, not so that we spend ourselves into oblivion and continue to spend, spend, spend and spend a little more. So I want to get into this uh, with Richard Vague. He's the managing partner of Gabriel Investments and the author of The Paradox of Debt, A New Path to Prosperity Without Crisis. I believe we had him on when this book came out, and I'm happy to have him back. Richard Vague, welcome, sir. Thank you so much for having me. 
You bet. So how do you react to uh, the, this news that President Biden is asking for another $60 billion and none of it's going to anything happening in the United States? Well, you know, I, I want to separate the issues of, you know, my own personal politics around supporting those wars. You know, I'm not personally that war oriented. And the separate question of whether $60 billion is affordable or not, I do believe we do have capacity for additional expenditures. Uh, my priorities might be different than, than uh, the president's. And how so? Well, I think there's a lot of things domestically that we need to be investing in. I, you know, not the least of those is, uh, you know, more fundamental basic research to take our uh, genetic engineering, biotech, and, and other technology forward. I think we've got a lot of room left in terms of the infrastructure that we need. I think, you know, some of the, the efforts to reshore manufacturing are terrific uses of our, our funding. Um, you know, I, you know, others, uh, have different views, but those are some of the things I think would be good investments. Huh? Not a lot to work with there. Let's talk about your book. Tell us about the book. Well, we, we look at the total debt of the seven largest countries in the world, really to give our readers a comprehensive framework for understanding debt. And we look at business debt, government debt, and household debt. And one of the important things to note is that personal and business debt, private sector debt, is significantly larger than government debt, not only in the United States, but across the world. In the U.S., private sector debt is about $42 trillion right now government debt's 33 trillion. So private sector debt is the bigger issue. It's the one that has more of an impact on the economy. It's the one that, you know, as the name paradox of debt implies, can bring both good and harm. It's certainly something that contributed and was the fundamental cause of some of our financial crises. So we spend a lot of time talking about that. When we took when we look at the the um, private sector debt, which you're saying is is obviously more than our uh, federal debt, what is the the impact um, to 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 the current situation, and how do we get on this path to prosperity without crisis? Well, there's a couple of things that are uh, really important to understand about debt. Uh, private sector debt really creates GDP growth. It can create wealth. But as I've already said, the paradox word implies that it also has a lot of danger associated with it. It was, you know, profligate, runaway private sector lending and the mortgage lending side of things that brought our 08 crisis. So the rapid accumulation of debt is something that causes crisis. That's what brought Japan's crisis in the 1990s. It's what brought the Great Depression in the 30s, uh, profligate, irresponsible lending. That's something that we can and should monitor in a way that prevents those crises forever occurring in the first place. The other thing we need to understand about private debt is 
it accumulates to the level where even when it's not causing a crisis, it burdens households and businesses and slows economic growth down. Private sector debt in the U.S. Uh, was only 35% of GDP in 1945. Today, it's 170% of wow. GDP. The, um, the uh, de- debt service ratio, uh, which is the portion of your disposable income you have to allocate to debt service, was less than 15% uh, in that se- at the beginning of that time frame. Today, it's 30%. So the average business and the average household is just struggling more today and has less uh, capacity to power the the economy forward than it did historically. Now, when you couple that with inflation, you've got quite a a uncomfortable scenario, no? You do. And, you know, what I would say to you is that inflation is coming back down to earth. It didn't get up as high as it has in previous bouts. It got up to about 9% last June, and then it came down to about 3.1%, and has kind of been in that low 3% range for the last 14 months now. So that part of it, I think, is while not great, is not the problem that it was. However, the Federal Reserve has kept interest rates very high. Mortgage rates are over Mm -hmm. 8%. Uh, you're seeing that across the board. So the the problem in my mind and the impact on households in my mind has more to do with what the Fed's policies are than anything else. And I think it's quite damaging to folks that are in debt. Now, we've recently seen a a surge in new home sales. I think uh, 12% increase is the highest level in more than a year. What do you attribute that to? Is it this boombastic uh, uh, economy that, that Janet Yellen is talking about, uh, or is it something else? You know, that's a, that's a really important statistic. And, you know, if, if you looked at historical averages, the, what I would call the proper level of unsold home inventory right now should be about 2 million homes. We only have about 900,000 unsold homes. So our inventory is low. And and to give you a perspective on that, in 2006, we had 4 million unsold homes. That's why we had uh, the financial crisis that we did. Today, we have an undersupply of homes, and I view that as kind of a a, kind of a hidden uh, firmness in the economy. You know, we, 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 when, just to meet the demand that's out there, in spite of the high rates, uh, builders are, are building and folks are buying. And what I would tell you is that that gives me a little bit of optimism that we aren't going to have a major recession because at whatever point the Fed starts to bring down interest rates, uh, things are going to pick up even more than the statistic you just mentioned in terms of new home sales and new home construction. Do you think that the role that institutional investors play right now, whereas I think in in years past, uh, there's always been institutional investors, but banks weren't always in the the business of buying up single family homes the way they are today. Do you think that's having an impact uh, on, on these numbers or is it insignificant? 
you know, we've looked at that pretty hard because that is a pronounced trend. You have folks like Blackstone and others out there becoming fairly major landlords. Uh, so I think it impacts things at the margin. It's still a fairly small part of the whole equation, however. And with with respect to, to the the scenario you just described, um, do you think that the reason that there is a shortage of homes is because people are locked into their one, two, three percent mortgages that they'll likely not see again? And they're they're thinking, if I sell this, I'm going to have to get into a new mortgage, potentially. That's going to be seven, eight or nine percent. And, and that's why there's a shortage of inventory. That's a big part of it. You know, that that kind of, you know, stultifies. Uh, activity there. And uh, so I, I clearly think that's a big part of it. Uh, I, I'll just repeat myself and say, I think the Fed has pushed rates up unnecessarily. And it's, uh, it's, uh, the effect is, is fairly painful on a lot of folks. I think so too. Folks, we're on with Richard Vague. He's managing partner of Gabriel Investments and the author of the book, the Paradox of Debt, A New Path to Prosperity Without Crisis. Richard Vague, I thank you for bringing us up to speed on what's going on in the economy and let everybody know how they can get a copy of your book. Well, it's The Paradox of Debt. You can get it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Uh, we also have a website, paradoxofdebt.com, and you can go to my own website, which is richardvague.com. And, you know, if you're, if you're interested in macroeconomics, I think it's a book you'll really enjoy. Outstanding. Richard Vague, thank you for being here, sir. We appreciate it. Folks, we go to your calls and more straight ahead. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. Congratulations on just an amazing show. I know you've worked so hard in the industry, and nobody deserves it more than you do. So I'm happy to see you really succeeding here. It's awesome. America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, amigos, welcome back, familia. And ABC News is reporting uh, an insane headline. Listen. Uh, I just spent the last couple of minutes. I'm going to read you the headline and I'm going to give you a paragraph. And then you tell me if I'm off my rocker or not. But this is ABC News, abcnews.com. Listen to this. Non-white Democrats are upset as Dean Phillips is expected to launch a challenge to Biden in New Hampshire. Yeah, you heard that right. Benny Thompson called it divisive and disrespectful to a key voting block. Now, uh, Minnesota Rep. Dean Phillips expected a decision to launch a long shot Democrat primary challenge against Joe Biden on Friday has upset several major non-white members of the party who think him starting a campaign 
by filing for the New Hampshire primary will be emblematic of what they argued was his disregard for Democrats' emphasis on the South and diverse voters. I've never read a sentence like that in my life. He's skipping a very diverse state to go to a non-diverse state. One senior black Democrat who requested anonymity, I'm guessing it's not Benny Thompson because they just mentioned his name, uh, to speak candidly with ABC News, adding, I think that it's a telltale sign of where your values are. They're arguing that this Congressman Dean Phillips is racist because he's registering to run for president in the New Hampshire primary. I've never heard such a crazy thing, and I've never seen a headline start with non-white Democrats. So my question for you all is, should I start referring to myself, maybe get one of those cool recordings with the lady who everybody loves her voice, the announcer lady, uh, saying, you know, non-white conservative. <laughs> is, this, is this the world that we live in now? I mean, I just think it's absolute insanity. Uh, you know, if, if I was able to vote for this guy, I would. Because somebody's got to run against Biden. Kudos to him, whether he wins or not. You need that. Him, Kennedy, all of those guys that are running against uh, Biden. Good for them. Biden's not even running in New Hampshire. So it looks like this guy's going to win, right? Because he's going to win by default since he's not on the ballot. He decided to not file. And I think the deadline was uh, on Friday. Anyway, they go on. Uh, uh, Phillips's team did not respond to a request for comment in the story. But he's uh, repeatedly teased a bid against Biden in the primary, but hasn't confirmed one yet. Now, he is thought to be gearing up to file for New Hampshire, and they expect that to happen on Friday. And um, listen to what he said. I think the country would be well served by a new generation of compelling, well-prepared, dynamic Democrats to step up. And that's uh, Dean Phillips, a former member of House Leadership. And he said that last year. So I'm very uh, interested in in hearing um, your thoughts on everything. Uh, let's go to Frank in Cumberland, Maryland on WCBC. Frank, you're on with Rich Valdez. What do you think about this primary challenge against Joe Biden? Is that racist? Oh, I don't know. I gave up on racial differences a long time ago. I was calling about uh, Richard Vague and the uh, issues he was raising. Can I speak on that, or should I get sure. off the air? What are your thoughts? Well, my thoughts was he raised more questions than he answered. He said 170% of GDP uh, is the private uh, sector debt. 170% of GDP is, is private debt. Uh, our federal budget is six, uh, $6 trillion, and we owe something like $32 trillion. Right. Now, if I owed five times my salary, I'd be bankrupt. Why isn't the federal government bankrupt? Or is that too simple a question? No, I think it's the right question, and I think it's the one that we often ask. And I think the answer to it is we have an economic system that's built on a house of cards kind of led by the Federal Reserve, and they're able to use quantitative easing, a.k.a. money printing, to get themselves out of it, but gets us into more trouble ultimately. Frank, thanks for the call. I got to go. The music means we're coming right back. Your calls and more don't go anywhere.
This is America. This is Night. This is Rich Valdez. The president said that if Iran or its proxies attacked U.S. troops, that we would respond. So what is he waiting for exactly? He did say that. Where's the response? He said that. And he said that we will... Repeating the warning is the response? Jackie, come on now. It's not what? a question. I'm not going to telegraph punches here from the podium. We have responded and retaliated in the past quite aggressively, in fact, back in March. And as the president said, uh, we will not hesitate to protect our troops and our facilities, but we're going to do it at a time of our choosing and a manner of our choosing. And the decision to do it, if we do it, is his as commander-in-chief and his alone. That's uh, John Kirby and Jackie Heinrich. She's from Fox News. He is the uh, spokesperson for the National Security Council. And I think that's what his job is. I I never know what his job is. But uh, for the first time, he sounded confident. And I guess he had a trick up his sleeve because it was announced a little while ago that Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin um, made the announcement that the United States has uh, made military strikes in eastern Syria. Today, at President Biden's direction, U.S. military forces conducted self-defense strikes on two facilities in eastern Syria used by Iran's uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC, and affiliated groups. These precision self-defense strikes are a response to a series of ongoing and mostly unsuccessful attacks against U.S. personnel in Iraq and Syria by Iranian-backed militia groups that began on October 17th. As a result of these attacks, one U.S. citizen contractor died from a cardiac incident while sheltering in place. 21 U.S. personnel suffered Uh, minor injuries, but all have since returned to duty. The president has no higher priority than the safety of the U.S. uh, personnel, and he directed today's action to make clear that the United States will not tolerate such attacks and will defend itself, its personnel, and its interests. That's uh, Secretary Austin on the strikes that just happened a little while ago in uh, Syria in response to their attacks on us. And... uh, this is a good thing, I think. It's a good thing. It's, it's, you can't be pushed around. I mean, this is the same president who let China fly a balloon over everybody's house, over every military installation, over all of our nuclear sites. Uh, I'm glad he's finally grown a set and he's stepping up. And I think he realizes if we don't take action now, we're going to be screwed. I think we're screwed already. So um, in a rare moment, I'm going to say kudos to Biden. Probably didn't go far enough. He probably should have done more. But I'm glad he did something. I mean, we'll probably find out tomorrow that, you know, they they did the strikes, but, oh, they were a mile off. They hit, you know, everything landed in a desert. They didn't hit anybody. Who knows? Uh, But I'm glad that he took action and that, you know, Kirby was able to talk tough for once. It's about time we're talking tough because that's what needs to happen. Now, I want to switch gears from uh, the war in Israel and now Syria and, and, of course, Iran was dying to get into it or at least posturing as if they want to get into it, to talk about the man who threatened to shoot up a military base and was institutionalized for it and then was set free and then he armed himself and went and shot 18 people yesterday. Uh, his name is um, Card, Robert Card, I believe was the name. And our guest is Lieutenant Randy Sutton. He's a retired cop public safety analyst, a 30-year law enforcement veteran serving 10 years in New Jersey, the Garden State, 
and 24 years with the Las Vegas Metro PD. He's the author of several books on law enforcement, and he's our guest right now. Randy Sutton, welcome, sir. It is a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you, LT. I appreciate it. Uh, I want to get into this uh, this story with uh, respect to the shooting yesterday. Uh, but uh, first, I want to I want you to hear a, a clip of audio because there was a lot of commentary coming out of Washington uh, with respect to what happened with this uh, shooting yesterday. And uh, of course, like clockwork, there is always um, there's always someone or that's trying to always somebody trying to take away a gun from a good guy when a bad guy uses a gun. Listen to this. We all remember uh, that tragedy at Virginia Tech and so many since then. And it's just it, it just sickens your soul. I mean, we have a sickness in this country around gun violence, and it's a uniquely American problem. Many other nations don't have the problem that we have. Um, states, including Virginia, have finally taken meaningful steps to deal with it. But Congress thus far has generally been unwilling to. Now, that's uh, Senator Tim Kaine. He was on MSNBC earlier today saying we have a sickness in this country around gun violence, and it's a uniquely American problem. Uh, I don't believe that to be true. I've seen the research. I've seen the data and the statistics. But uh, Lieutenant Randy Sutton, what say you? You know, every time that there is an incident involving a uh, some type of heinous crime involving a firearm, you have the left just... Um, losing their minds and and calling for more and more laws and gun quote control unquote the the fallacy in all of this is that those that commit gun crimes don't care about the the fact that there is a, a law that forbids them because the laws already exist to punish those that commit gun crimes it is, it is this simplistic view that um, um, every time that there is an incident, uh, there is more and more cry to add more and more laws, even though the facts are that the laws already exist. They are just not being adhered to, and generally by those on the left in district attorney's offices and prosecutors, um, around the country that uh, that could hold people accountable for gun crimes, but don't. Yeah, it's a, it's a very good point, and, and one that I think we, we've discussed, and, and it, it, it seems to get lost in the narrative where the proponents of gun control seem to come from a perspective as if we live in a lawless society and there is no gun control. There is no existing law. It's not illegal to kill people. It's not wrong or bad in any way. And and they demonize the gun instead of the person. This is like an age-old debate. Guns don't kill people. Keep People kill people. And it's to me, I, I really do find it remarkable that we're still having that same messaging battle. Well, well, let, let's look at the reality. We Here we have a madman with a gun who... There were so many uh, red flags here. There were so many issues involving this this uh, suspect, uh, and he fell through the cracks again. But the reality is this: that you are never going to be able to control individuals 
who are bent on destroying others. And this, this suspect, um, you know, for, for years, um, you know, served, you know, admirably in the, in the service began experiencing what was clearly, um, mental health issues. And yet he fell through the cracks. So there's, there's things to look at here where, um, where, you know, there's plenty of blame to go around, but it isn't about the gun. It is about the individual who is using that weapon for nefarious purposes. Yeah, well put. Folks, we're on with uh, Lieutenant Randy Sutton. He's retired law enforcement commenting on this uh, tragedy that occurred yesterday with this madman that was uh, murdering people, uh, just open fire on on people in really just a horrible situation. And uh, we're going to continue our discussion with him straight ahead. Again, if you want to join the conversation, you have a question or a comment, feel free, 833-482-5337. And, of course, we have Open Phone America starting at the top of the hour. You could start getting your calls in for that as well. Again, the phone number, 833-4-VALDEZ. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. does not have to be this way. It's within Congress's power to pass legislation that will make our streets safer, that will make our community safer, that will make our schools safer. Now is the time. Now is the time to find common ground. Let's work together to ban assault weapons and high capacity magazines. Let's work together to enact universal background checks, require safe storage, of guns and keep guns out of the hands of criminals and dangerous individuals who have no business being armed with a weapon of war. So that's White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre, you know, reciting the usual talking points of weapons of war, weapons of war. Uh, Lieutenant Randy Sutton is our guest, uh, retired law enforcement professional. LT, what's your thought on this uh, constant um, rhetoric about weapons of war. Yeah, this is the misnomer that is, is constantly thrown into the mix here. Uh, weapons of war. These are semi-automatic weapons that we're talking about. They're not fully automatic. They're not the M16s. They're not the, uh, you know, the, the, the machine guns that, um, the left pretends that these rifles are. These are simply semi-automatic weapons, and yet, you know, the the um, the folks like like uh, the White House spokesperson. The truth doesn't matter. It, it's not about accuracy. It's about talking points. It's about you know the the political rhetoric, and you know, 
you, you, you can throw every law, you can create a gazillion laws, which is exactly what they want to do. Those that are um, bent on committing crimes, utilizing weapons, are going to do it. And the only, I mean, think of this. All these people were murdered in, in, a, in a bowling alley and in a bar. My question is, why wasn't there a good guy with a gun there to put a stop to this? Yeah, I, it's my question as well. Um, I, I can't see why, and I think we, this is why we need more. I think in incidents like this, we should, as Americans and, and the government and the White House should be saying, go out there and get a gun, pack some heat. Right? You, you could be next. Don't be next. And I, I think uh, I, I'm a firm believer in an armed society being a very polite society and, and one that's safer because of things like this. Where do you think this goes? Do you think uh, this is going to catch um, some momentum and uh, they'll continue the, the push for gun control? Or do you think the temperature of the country is cooled to a point where they, they hear this and they say, you know what, that's the same rhetoric there? Because I can tell you a couple of instances. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who is pretty anti-gun. He's like, look, if you want a gun, if you're a cop or whatever, you need one, go right ahead. But his opinion was everybody shouldn't be carrying a gun. You, me, the rest of us, we shouldn't be carrying guns. We don't have any training for that. It, it's silly. That's, that's crazy. Now, he's not uh, native to the United States. He was born in Cuba uh, during the Castro regime. And uh, he's a pretty moderate thinking guy. But that was his belief until about a week ago where he tells me he was on the turnpike in Pennsylvania and somebody started really uh, harassing him on the road and then threw a water bottle at his car in a, in a road rage incident and started trying to run him off the road. And he said, you know, at that very moment, he was in the car with his, with his wife and a, an elderly family member. And he said, you know, at that moment, he said, I thought about you telling me this is why you need a gun. <laughs> and he said, and I really wish that I would have had one in that moment because I thought this guy was coming for me. And I think that this is what happens. People realize that uh, they might need to defend themselves and potentially use lethal force if lethal force is being used against them. And oftentimes it's late or too late uh, for, for many people. Uh, do you think that's where m the majority of Americans are? Do you think there's still a lot of reticence to the Second Amendment? Well, I, I still... I do believe that there's a lot of reticence. However, you know, those people who have ever been victims of crime, especially violent crime, where um, they're rendered helpless because of the, you know, inability to obtain a, a gun permit, as, <coughs> excuse me, as has happened in so many uh, American cities that have, you know, basically made it almost impossible to get a gun permit as an honest citizen. And yet, when those people are attacked, they feel helpless because they have been, they basically been neutered by the, yeah. the by the politics. <laughs> and you know, what's interesting also LT is I remember him telling me, he said, I called the cops and they told me go to the shoulder. And, you know, he said most of the time with this altercation he was having, you know, he was flipping the guy, the bird, the guy threw water at him, this and that. And he said, when the police told me to pull over to the right and to then ride the shoulder to, to get away from him, he said this really emboldened the guy because the guy thought he was trying to run away from him. And uh, I guess he sensed fear. 
And when he saw that he was trying to flee the scene, the guy became more aggressive. Ultimately, the cops came and then the guy did the dip and they didn't catch him, um, at least not while he was there. But uh, he was saying, you know, you, you can't show fear or back down to these bullies because ultimately th- that just makes them more aggressive. So I think you're right. That's uh, exactly where we are. Hey, Lieutenant Randy Sutton, let everybody know how they can find you and follow the work that you're doing. Well, I, I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, my organization is The Wounded Blue. Uh, it is thewoundedblue.org. We are a national assistance and support organization for injured and disabled law enforcement officers. Um, you know, when, when we're, I'd like to just mention this, that, you know, those officers that went to the scene of this, this, this just, you know, bloodthirsty killing in Maine, um, where they had multiple casualties, these officers that, that, um, attended to this, are going to be struggling with their own issues after seeing the carnage that was there. Having you know been to multiple crime scenes myself during my career, I understand the effect that it can have. So the Wounded Blue exists to help those officers, uh, whether they're injured physically or emotionally and psychologically. So I and ask your... Yeah, and I, I'm just running out of time. We're down to 10 seconds. Give us the website one more time. TheWoundedBlue.org. See who we are. See what we do. Give what you can. Folks, that's Lieutenant Randy Sutton. Thank you, sir. I appreciate you. For having me. You bet. Coming right back. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Rich Valdez. Guilty as charged. Uh, Congressman Jamal Bowman pled guilty in court today. He was arraigned in D.C., turned himself into the police as part of his arrest on this matter. Uh, you might remember back on September, I think it was September 30th, he, um, he pulled a fire alarm and he said, oh, my bad. I pulled the fire alarm because I thought that was how you opened the door. Now, of course, uh, I know six-year-olds that know how to open a door without setting off fire alarms, but apparently the congressman from New York doesn't know how to do that. He must be a colleague of all-out crazy AOC Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez because the things he says and does are crazy. Well, anyway, he's a liar, a big fat liar, because he said that it was an accident, that he was trying to open the, the door by pulling, thinking you pull a fire alarm and a door opens. What a pendejo. The reality here is that all of it was lies because the video footage that they used to find him guilty shows that he was ripping off exit signs as he was pulling the alarm. So not only did he know what he was doing, he was pulling off the emergency exit signs. That's absolutely crazy, in my opinion. He did this to delay a vote and cause a fire alarm when the Republicans were trying to prevent the government from shutting down. So, Jamal Bowman, shame on you. And what did he get? A $1,000 fine. If he doesn't write an apology letter. <laughs> and a, he has to write an apology letter and pay 1000 bucks. What a joke. Folks, we're coming right back. Open Phone America starts right now. Get your calls in. 
Live from the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez. America's favorite late night talk program featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. Welcome to the program. It's Thursday night, throwback Thursday, if you will. And uh, if you want to join us on our late night national town hall conversation, feel free. Our phone number is 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. Going to get to your calls momentarily, so you can continue to call in. We're lining you guys up. A uh, few things I want to mention. Uh, because there was a bunch of great stories yesterday that I just didn't have a chance to get to. But so far tonight, we've been talking about that shooting in Maine, the mass murder uh, that is suspected to have been committed by Robert Card, a uh, guy who was dealing with some mental issues, uh, according to reports. Uh, we've also had uh, some conversation on the economy and uh, so much more. And I'm going to get into a couple of interesting stories on violence tonight because it's, it's kind of crazy, some of the stuff that's going on. Let me just throw a couple of these at you, right? There's a watchdog group that's warning that AI-generated images of child abuse are flooding the Internet. So you're talking about pictures of kids being abused, and they're fake. They were generated, I guess they're going to make the argument as art, uh, and then they're putting these on the Internet, and they're not real occurrences. Fake AI, artificial intelligence, generated images of child abuse. And it makes you think, what on earth are we doing that for? Well, some sick bastard somewhere gets off on this stuff. And that's disgusting. But you know what? There's a lot of sick bastards out there. Uh, in addition to this this madman that murdered uh, 18 people yesterday, it was originally reported as 22, but uh, it ended up being 18. <clears throat> Thank God it was you know, less, not more. You remember the two kids, other two other sickos that... Um, that killed in cold blood, that murdered a police chief, uh, a retired police chief who was riding his bicycle, and they ran him off the road and laughed and filmed the whole thing. Well, those guys were in court yesterday, and they're caught on video laughing in court and grinning at the victim's family after this horrific murder. The teens accused of fatally mowing down a retired police chief with a stolen car were giggling in court on Tuesday, smirking at the victim's family and flipping them the bird. Jesus Ayala, 18 years old, and Jasmir Keys, I'm sure I'm saying that wrong, but what do I care? 16 years old, appeared for a hearing in the morning in Las Vegas, and they were indicted on charges of murdering uh, former police chief Andreas Probst and a bunch of other serious felonies. They also stole a bunch of cars. I think they stole four cars that day. They they ran over another bicyclist. I mean, these guys are absolutely insane. And all I can think of is when people get caught doing these things, all I think is they're the ones that got caught. What about the ones who get away with it? I don't think they invented this game of real life running people over. Absolute insanity. 
But this is how it is. People, you know, are just losing their stuff and and really acting up. And I mean, this is just one of those things where, I mean, can we say it's mental health or we just say it's pure evil? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I think it's probably both. They're crazy and they're sick. Uh, anyway, we continue uh, with this topic with respect to um, violence. Um, I'll get to this next story in a moment because it's, um, it's a lot, right? There's a lot to deal with. Uh, let's go to Paul, Boise, Idaho, K-B-O-I. Go right ahead. Thanks for taking my call, Rich. You bet. Yeah, I just... You know, I find it exceedingly disturbing about the the guy that shot up the place yesterday in Maine. Um, You know, all you can do is really shake your head and wonder if there isn't some kind of multi-solution to the problem. But it's going to take time. And and unfortunately, during that time that it takes, somebody else is going to get taken down. uh, It's pretty frustrating. I would have especially say probably for law enforcement that they're the last line of defense for everything. And they get the worst rap of all, like, like the first thing they think of before they put on their shorts in the morning is, you know, who am I going to shoot today and kill? That, that's not, that's not how they think. Right. Of course. They're thinking of coming home alive. Yeah. My roommate is an 81 year old retired cop. I love the guy. You know, he, 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 he actually helped the lady have a child in the back of his squad car. He, he did a lot of things like that. But did he ever ask for any recognition for it? Did he ever get a button for it? No. He just kept doing what was in front of him as a law enforcement officer trying to keep peace because they're peacekeepers. Now, yeah. You know, Paul, I think you bring up a really good point. And, and I have to say, uh, my experience with police my whole life, I have some older brothers that are are retired now from NYPD, but um, my brother, John Valdez, he still works. Uh, he retired from the NYPD, went into the feds. He works with uh, one of the federal law enforcement agencies, and he's a, he's an amazing cop. And and I've always had nothing but respect for them. My, my brother, Al, uh, same thing, retired from the NYPD, works as um, director of security at a big hotel in New York City. And it's uh, it, it, those were the examples that I saw set forth before me. And, and realizing that they worked hard. They, they did their job conscientiously. There are so many great men and women in law enforcement, and, and they get such a bad rap as if they're bad guys that are out there hunting whomever. And it, it's, it's not true, and it's really unfair. You know, and I don't want to sound like I'm whining here, but it just it's like this constant onslaught from the left, from the media, from academia with everyone just constantly trying to paint the boys in blue as the worst thing ever. And it doesn't help anybody because ultimately, like you said, for many people that call to the police and them arriving is your last line of defense before you end up dead somehow. And that's just a fact. And until we fix that situation, or at least repair the damage that was done by the Black Lives Matter movement and and other movements that were very anti-police politicians like my least favorite congresswoman from the Bronx and Queens, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, all out crazy, who was calling to um, abolish ICE. 
Look at how that's working out. They didn't abolish ICE, and they still can barely handle what's going on at the border. So it's clear to me that we absolutely need law enforcement, and I'm not calling for a police state. Uh, I, I want them to stay in their lane. I want me to stay in my lane, but I want to make sure that if somebody needs them, they're there. Paul, thanks for the call. Big shout-out to Boise, Idaho, KBOI, your calls and more. Actually, before I go, I, I want to get to one more call. Uh, I want to go to Mojave, California, KTPI. Let's go with uh, James. James, welcome. You're on with Rich Valdez. Go right ahead. I'd like to thank you, sir, for uh, allowing me to even speak with you. Uh, I listen to your program quite a bit. Thank you. I am a first-time uh, you you definitely uh, bring up a lot of different things that people need to listen to. Uh, I just want to say, uh, the officer, retired officer that you had on previously, uh, there's no question about it. Uh, there's a lot of things going on. And, uh, you know, the men in blue, no question about it. We need great support. Uh, family members are also involved with uh, law enforcement. Uh, I myself uh, am a great supporter of that and uh, also being involved uh, in many different uh, different ways, you would say. Um, I have to say, uh, let me ask you this. Sure. I think there is an erosion going on with the Constitution, which will eventually be destroying the Constitution. And we see the, the Second Amendment, uh, you know, firm believer, as uh, a lot of different Americans are firm believers in that. But there's an interesting thing that's being done, and I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, the insanity that's going on in America, uh, as well as uh, pure evil, uh, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, that's, uh, that's really what's going on here. And as time goes on, it seems to be getting worse. And with all the turmoil that's going on in the Middle East right now, as well as what we're seeing you know, in our own homeland, and then we have things going on in the White House. Uh, I can only there's only one thing that comes to my mind, and, and a lot of people may not be uh, believers of this, but there's an interesting uh, scripture in Romans 13 where it talks about whosoever there resists the power, uh, resists the ordinance of God, and then resist shall receive the, uh, to themselves damnation. The rulers are not a terror to the good works, but to the evil. So it's, it's quite interesting when you. You have evil out there, and the last line of defense, you would say, are the cops, the, the law, the people involved in law enforcement, in many different aspects, and the agencies. So we have deteriorated as a society in this nation, unfortunately, and then we're going to turn around and blame it on the guns? Something's wrong with that picture there. And, I think you're right, uh, James. Yeah, go right ahead. Uh, anyways. I do well, appreciate uh, you having the, the many different uh, people on the radio there. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, James, for the call. I appreciate you being a first-time caller, calling from Mojave, California, KTPI, and I appreciate your kind words, and I echo your sentiments as well. We've got to stand up for the boys in blue that are doing the right thing, and we got to stand up to the boys in blue that are doing the wrong thing when we see that. Uh, it, it's about being fair and it's about doing the right thing. And if, it, listen, you and me, we can stand up to evil if we have to. But these guys have to stand up to evil every single day. And to that, I salute everybody out there in law enforcement. Keep it locked right here, folks. Your calls and more 
straight ahead. Don't move a muscle. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. across America to the liberty-loving Latino, Rich Valdez. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. We're discussing all sorts of things tonight, from the mass shooting to law enforcement to red flag laws and everything else. I want to go to Ed in Dothan, Alabama, WDBT. Ed, go right ahead. You're on with Rich Valdez. Hey, Rich. How you doing, man? Wonderful, thank you. All right, hey, I just had a comment. Look, I've, I've about what you're talking about the police. I've worked with cops for thirty something years, and you know, everybody wants to get on. They they're out there doing their job, and they have to put up. You know, they have to make split second decisions every day, and they don't need flack from all these politicians and black lives, all this stuff. You know, they're not out there, like your caller said a few minutes ago, they're not out there just to go shoot somebody. That's the last thing they want to do. But, you know, for them to still go to that job every day and do what they do, knowing that they could get drugged through the coals anytime for doing their job, and they still go to it, you know, I'm glad they're there. I mean, and everybody needs to shut their mouths once in a while and thank them that they're there, you know, and be thankful they're there. I think you're right, Ed. Uh, we have to be grateful for that. And, and listen, uh, you know, the last time we had a conversation with uh, Sergeant Betsy Brantner Smith from the national police association, uh, I told her, I said, look, I support law enforcement, but uh, I'm not blind either. And there are some cops out there that think they're RoboCop that are, and they're few and far between them. And a lot of them are young and they're new. And that has to do with the recruitment problem that, that everybody's facing. And most police departments are facing this, where they're getting the, not the, the cream of the crop, the best candidates in some situations, uh, people that may require additional training, that, you know, they, they pull you over for a speeding ticket, and, you know, they're calling in the SWAT team at the same time. It's like, well, what's going on here? I'm by myself in my car, and I'm unarmed. But uh, I realize that some, some cops are very overzealous, very few number, but by and large, the majority of cops are out there doing the right thing, putting their life on the line, uh, trying to do their job and do it well for the betterment of the public good. And, and sadly, you've got political movements in this country that, you know, it's okay to criticize somebody, but it's another thing to try to want to eliminate somebody, to eliminate the police, to defund the police. And we've seen how that works out extraordinarily poorly when that does happen. So, Ed, I appreciate the call. Thank you, uh, WDBT. Big shout out to you guys. Uh, we continue. Let's go to Liz in Slingerlands, New York, WGDJ. Liz, go right ahead. Thank you so much, Rich, for taking my call. I'm a first-time caller. Oh, thank you. Welcome Rich. to the program. Thank you. 
Rich, I'm very upset over this shooting. New, I live in New York State. New York State passed what they call the red flag laws. And if a person exhibited any form of mental instability, um, if there was domestic abuse, if there was any, any kind of, um, if they showed any kinds of violence, the red flag law allowed the government to go and take the guns away from that person. Right. Now, Mr. Card, uh, with his reserves, he was at West Point this summer. And, and this is an NBC article that I'm, I'm reading from, okay? I'm not yep. making this up out of whole cloth. It's NBC. The... Um, the, the family called the reserve officers and told them about him having mental issues. And the um, two senior law enforcement officials said CARD unit commander sent him to receive psychiatric treatment this summer after they became concerned about threats he made to the base and his claims that he was hearing voices. He spent two weeks undergoing inpatient psychiatric treatment. A Defense Department official said CARD's unit requested that the law enforcement be contacted in July after he began behaving erratically. New York State Police responded and took him to Keller Army Community Hospital at the U.S. Military Academy for medical evaluation. Of course, they're, they're denying this. Oh, we can't find any records of this. But the same thing, Rich, the same, same thing happened with the shooter in Buffalo at the, at the supermarket. Yeah. He had been hospitalized. And yet New York State said he didn't meet the criteria for the red flag laws. Uh, what, is, what, is, what is the problem here, Rich? You know, honestly, this, I don't know the problem here. I, I really don't know. I, 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 for one, I don't like red flag laws. Uh, even in a situation like this, and I know I probably sound unpopular there, but I, I don't like the idea that the government can take your guns away. It, it, it's just, I feel like they're going to abuse it, and they're going to say, oh, my God, look at you wearing a red MAGA hat. You don't deserve to have a gun. Uh, but when you do have them in place and they don't work, for me, it goes right back to all these gun control things. Adding more laws doesn't change sick, crazy people from doing sick, crazy things. And that's just the bottom line. It's very unfortunate, and, and we have to do better in society, but we're not there yet. Thank you for the call, Liz. Coming right back. The rest of your calls don't go anywhere. America. Welcome back. It's Open Phone America, a time-honored tradition here on this program that dates back to 1978, which is the year I was born, by the way, when Larry King started uh, Open Phones Across America, a tradition carried on by Jim Bohannon for three decades, and uh, we're doing it live tonight with you all, 833-4825-337-8334, Valdez, talking about the shooter, talking about red flag laws, talking about anything that comes to your mind 
Nothing's really off limits unless it's off limits. And a uh, quick story I wanted to sh- share with you before I jump back into the calls. There was a, a story. Oh, where'd it go? Oh, it was a funny one. Not funny, you know, funny, like funny, hmm, not funny, haha. Uh, about these guys. You know, so you guys know I was born in Brooklyn, New York. I live in Jersey now. But this, this story here, this is a, a fascinating one. Coney Island, right? That's the, uh, the boardwalk in Brooklyn, New York, where uh, you have uh, the Wonder Wheel and, and a bunch of, you know, it's, a, it's like, uh, I don't know, it's an amusement park. It's a lot of things. There's some sideshows. There's a Nathan's there where they have the famous hot dog eating competition. And the, uh, one of the workers at the amusement park just got 13 years in prison for shooting uh, a, a, a colleague a fellow carney uh, in a dispute over game booth pro- uh, profits. Excuse me. I promise I know how to read. And this is in the New York Post. A Coney Island amusement park worker shot his colleague in the chest over an ongoing beef about game booth profits and was sentenced to 13 years in prison for attempted murder. Uh, Joseph Colon, 38 years old, laid uh, waiting for his arrival of the night on September 10th, uh, 2021, taking a tactical position behind Luna's Park Jumbo Prizes game booth and blasting the victim in the chest when he arrived for his shift at 8 p.m. That's according to the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office. Uh, Mr. Colon then briefly chased the wounded man before ducking down a street and tossing his camouflage hoodie in the garbage uh, at Nathan's uh, famous hot dog stand. Now, the 38-year-old victim uh, collapsed and was taken to NYU Langone Hospital in Brooklyn, where he was treated for a broken rib, a collapsed lung, and blah, 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 blah. And the two men had been arguing for over a week. The ambush uh, came after customers and uh, profits came into question at that particular booth. After the shooting, uh, Mr. Colon tried to flee the scene to Temple, Pennsylvania, where U.S. Marshals grabbed him and the NYPD's uh, Fugitive Task Force tackled him and brought him back to uh, New York City. So that's what's going on with the folks at Coney Island. And let me tell you, since I was a little kid, there's always been shootings on Coney Island. I mean, I, I can tell you as a little kid, I remember being like seven years old and seeing people pulling out guns on the boardwalk in the middle of the day. And it had been many years since I'd been there, and I took my kids some years ago, maybe about 10 years back, and I was telling them, when I was a kid, I came here with Grandpa. And we were walking, and the cops were running around with their guns drawn, and it was like a big deal. And literally, as I was saying that, the cops just tackled somebody and were locking somebody else up. Uh, it, there's, there's always some drama going down in Coney Island. Uh, but that's the story here. And uh, I, I just thought it was so interesting how people are just freaking out over everything. you got shooting people in the chest, shooting dozens of people. Everybody seems to be nuts right now. Uh, let's go to Laurie, Colchester, Vermont, WVMT. Go right ahead. Well, hello, Rich. Um, it's been a while, and I thank Hola. you for taking my call. My pleasure, Laurie. Excuse me. Um, I was just thinking of the, uh, the police situation and the crime situation. I live near Burlington, Vermont which has an extremely, pretty much progressive town, uh, city council. And, of course, when the whole George Isn't Floyd that home situation. to Bernie Sanders? Yes, it is. It's where our buddy Bernie came from. Got okay, is right. that right? Yeah, we remember him. 
Oh, yeah. Can't forget him. Well, anyways, um, of course, when the horrible situation with George Floyd came down, the progressives decided to defund the police. You know, not defund them, you know, reduce funding. And so, hence, there's less police. And, uh, of course, what happens? The crime goes up. And we start having, Burlington wasn't known for much uh, extreme violent crime with guns and shootings. Well, lo and behold, hasn't that started happening? And it's affected Mm. the, uh, what do I want to say, the tourism industry. And they still cannot figure out why. You know, it's like, where's the common sense in this? Like you said, there are police that aren't okay, and they're very zealous and not safe to be around. You know, they they take the power the wrong way that they have. But where are, you know, you need police around to protect you and to keep your, your cities, your towns, your states, everything safe. And I'm just amazed that common sense in this country has gone down the toilet. Yeah, and you know what? That's the dumbing down of our public education system uh, with kids reading less. Uh, a couple of years back, they decided to eliminate cursive handwriting. And again, is it a huge deal? I don't know. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But if it wasn't hurting anybody to learn in cursive, to learn how to write in cursive, well, why would we stop teaching it across the board? Like, why on earth would you teach less instead of teaching more? I don't understand. I don't see how you become uh, the world leader in anything if you're doing less than everybody else. Lori, thank you for your call. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, always a big shout out to the police and WVMT. And uh, of course, we 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 feel badly when we're faced with situations where uh, the wrong person gets a job or there's a lack of training because of a recruitment crisis. Uh, this is why we can't defund the police. It's exactly why we need to support them in what they're doing. Uh, let us continue. Let's go to Mark in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. KDKA. Go right ahead, Mark. Yes. Hey, Rich. Good morning. How are you this evening? This morning. Buenos dias. Buenas noches. I'm doing great, brother. Thank you. Beautiful. Hey, listen, I'm going to try to speak fast to get my points in. The issue with the uh, police, uh, I think it's unfortunate that uh, five years or so ago, they decided to propagandize the whole difference of people having issues with those handful of bad cops. And so they made the campaign about you know, people, you know, us against them, which is not the case. With, right. with the newness of all of the uh, t- cell phones and, and cars and, ca- and, uh, and cameras and cars, they've been able to highlight it and through social media, identify those few bad officers. And so they should be under scrutiny. Uh, the majority of the people support the police, and it's unfortunate that they're taking this kind of campaign, and I don't particularly uh, like it because I think everybody knows how important uh, the police are. The issue with the mm-hmm. the, the, the uh, shooter and uh, that just shot shot up uh, eighteen nineteen folks. Uh, you know, Rich, I'd like to make a suggestion for your suggestion box as as a future guest, and I don't even know yep. who the guest is, but I'm sure you can find them. Isn't it time that we get someone who can begin to string together the data? from these mass shootings. Remember, the, the, we're talking about in the last two weeks, the shootings in the, in the grocery store. You also had the pilot 
who reached over. Now he's being charged. But what did he say? Mushrooms. He said that he took some mu- Yes. <laughs> Isn't it time? And remember, this this shooter, the recent shooter, mental health, but when they release them, they're all released on some kind of follow-up plan. And they're giving a list of medications to take. Isn't it time to begin to show the relationship between what medication were they on and were they mixing their medication with drugs and smoking? I have a friend who smokes regularly marijuana, and he told me the stuff that you buy legally now, if you're not aware of it, if you take two hits of some of that stuff on the shelf, he said it will turn you into from a peaceful person to an extremely violent person. That man said he heard voices. Rich, we're charging you with the responsibility of getting us somebody on your show to start talking about the similarities in some of these mass shootings. And let's attack it on a two-pronged issue, the guns, as well as this stuff that they're using to get high on. Excellent, excellent, Mark. I love that, and uh, we will do that. I think it's a great topic. And and what you said about the potency of marijuana, I have to say, uh, yeah. I mean, I have a friend out in California, and he never smoked pot like growing up, uh, but he t- I went to visit him and he was and he was smoking pot. And I was like, what are you doing? And he took two pulls of this thing. Uh, and, and I was like, wow, so your new hobby and you don't do a lot of it. And he said, no, 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 you can't do a lot. This is some special strand of blah, 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 blah. And he said, this opens up your mind. It makes you creative. It makes it. He said, when you go to the place, there's like 50 different types. And all I could think to myself was, this is not the stuff that I saw Cheech and Chong smoking in the movies. This is, um, it's pretty intense stuff that he's taking two pulls. He says he's high for eight hours from that. I was like, wow, that's kind of crazy. So, um, yeah, I agree with you. There's a lot of changes in marijuana that, you know, I think a lot of people uh, look back and think, uh, yeah, I remember that, you know, from, from the 60s and the Woodstock era not necessarily the same as it used to be. Mark, thanks for the call on America's oldest radio station, KDKA. Uh, let's see. Well, I, ah, I got there. If I start now, they're going to make me pause. And they yelled in my ear to make me stop. So I'm going to pause right here. We're going to come right back and we're going to take your calls. We've got, check this out. We've got two calls from the Philippines tonight, one from Manila and one from Angeles City. We're going to get to both of those. We've got calls from Chicago, New York, North Carolina, Florida, South Carolina, and Arizona. We're covering every part of the country. Don't go anywhere. I'm Rich Valdez. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. And he's breaking it down. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, we come back to your calls. Let's go to Eugene, Angeles City in the Philippines. Go right ahead, sir. Well, good my afternoon, sir. Ha ha. Ha ha. Welcome. Different perspective. Uh, Like your caller Mark had said, I agree totally with Look at the number of states where recreational use of marijuana is now legal. I believe it's more than 30. Super high THC content. 
hallucinogenic mushrooms. And people wonder why things are the way they are. It that it's not rocket science. I think you're right, Eugene. I think you're absolutely right. Um, there's there's a lot going on, and and I guess that's part of the debate as to why uh, they 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 don't release it from being a schedule one narcotic at the federal level. Uh, but states have legalized it. And in the states that have legalized it, I know we looked at some of the results of what happened in Colorado, which is one of the first to do it. And their homeless population increased, their unemployment rate went up. Uh, there was a lot of information. Again, a lot of people said that one has nothing to do with the other, but it did happen at the same time as, as the, uh, the legalization of recreational marijuana use. And uh, I was just looking at a piece in the Wall Street Journal where um, a doctor, a psychiatrist, was saying that she has a number of patients that say they, they use marijuana to relax because of stress and anxiety. And she said, I've been seeing some of these patients for years, and they still come to me for stress and anxiety, and they smoke pot. And her contention was, if it was really working, you wouldn't keep coming back to me saying that you're stressed out and anxious. <laughs> and I thought that was pretty interesting. So we're working on booking her for the show uh, to have part of that conversation. But uh, Eugene, thank you for calling and for listening to the show. Uh, while it's early time in uh, the Philippines, it's a late night over here. Big shout out to you. And thanks for listening to Rich Valdez, AmericaAtNight.com. We continue with the OG from the Philippines, Gil from Manila. Gil, welcome. You're on with Rich Valdez. Yeah. Go right ahead. It's all—it's always a pleasure to talk to my liberty-loving, follically challenged amigo. Uh, <laughs> follically challenged is but, right. Um, <laughs> but anyhow, um, I want to quote an old bumper sticker that said, uh, "When guns are outlawed, only outlaws." So um, I think there's a great deal of wisdom in that attitude. But that's not why I called. You had a guest on tonight that was talking about the FBI and the uh, three challenges that changed the culture. And one of them was the uh, uh, roundup of American citizens of uh, Japanese ancestry and having them put into camps. Well, lots of people don't realize that while that was going on, the Philippines here was being invaded and occupied by Japanese. And American citizens who were of Japanese ancestry, people who were born here because this was a sovereign American territory, just like Puerto Rico, they... When the Japanese started winning, they threw in with the Japanese against the American forces that were fighting back. And they found out, of course, about this in, uh, in the U.S. And the, someone who became Chief Justice of the United States, Earl Warren, at that time, he was Attorney General in California, asked Franklin to do this. This was, this was Earl Warren's idea, but they only took Japanese uh, who lived close to the uh, Pacific, Pacific Coast. 
because they were afraid that they, in case of Japanese invasion, they would have to put up with a fifth column. And uh, so uh, those those folks were the ones who were uh, who were rounded up. Now they violated the law because they used the 1940 census to actually locate people who fell into that category. And And it wasn't just the census on on the way that they violated the law. It was, uh, you know, it was crazy that they even did this, that FDR decided to put people in prison. And I I get the reasoning why I I don't condone it. They also did something similar with another um, operation they called Operation Wetback. I'm not making that up. That's a real thing. You can Google it if you like. Uh, but yeah, very good point that you made um, uh, regarding those three incidents, uh, Pearl Harbor, 9-11, and the attack on Fort Sumter. Gil, I got to take a pause here because they're yelling at me down the line. But thank you for your call. Big shout out to you and everybody listening in the Philippines. And uh, we continue with the rest of your calls straight ahead. It's the Speed Round. I'm Rich Valdez. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, it is the speed round, and this is where you get to take your two-minute call and condense it into 20 or 25 seconds. That means one sentence that nails it. And, yes, you can do it. For those of you who think you can't do it, you absolutely can. Linda, Albany, New York, WGDJ, go for it. Thanks for taking my call, Rich. I just wonder, the guy in Maine, I feel bad that his family and the powers that were trying to help him weren't able to get him totally uh, back on the road to uh, straight, uh, be such that they didn't. he didn't get involved in killing people. You're right. I think you're right. That's 26 seconds, Linda. Thank you. I appreciate it. And you're right. Um, This guy needed help. He should have gotten the help. It's a shame that he didn't get it. Uh, These things happen. And uh, I I feel terrible. I feel bad. They shouldn't happen. Matt, near Moorhead City, North Carolina, 80 miles north. Go for it. Yes, sir, Rich. I'll make this quick. At the midnight hour, I found out that the police surrounded Andrew Card's home and They're going to get him, believe me. I could go on, but... Yeah, I don't think he was home. Andrew Card was the secretary of the White House. Uh, We're talking about Robert Card, the suspect here. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate it. Big shout out to WTKF. And Scott in South Carolina, sorry, brother. Uh, We ran out of time. The music means we got to go. But if you could give me a call back tomorrow, I'd love that. And anybody who didn't make it on tonight, you go first tomorrow night. Hasta la próxima. Take care. Good night. And God bless. I'm Rich Valdez. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.